When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. I am your host, Dion Rabowen. We got a spectacular show today. We're going to be talking all things Federal Reserve. Uh, We're going to be talking treasuries and the stock market. And of course, the moves going on in currencies and most particularly the US dollar. I've got the best possible guest that you could ever have with me today. We've got Peter Bookvar. He is the chief investment officer of Bleakley Advisory Group, and you know him from his report, The Book Report. Peter, thanks so much for being with us on the Real Vision Daily Briefing today. Thanks, Dan, for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, you know. We, we closed lower on the NASDAQ, a, a real tired close there for the NASDAQ, but the S&P and the Dow both closing higher. Uh, it seems like it's really, though, all about yields, the moves on the 10-year and the 30-year note, uh, the 10-year note and the 30-year bond, excuse me. I don't want any of you bond nerds out there dropping in my mentions. Uh, but you know, talk to me, Peter, when you see these moves on the stock market, we had a big move down lower yesterday. Today, we got kind of a dead cat bounce and not even a bounce in the NASDAQ. What are your thoughts about what we saw from today's market action? Well, it's very much a replay of uh, the first quarter where we saw this uh, sharp rise in interest rates and we saw selling in all the growthy, high-valued stocks. And that is happening again here as the rise in rates and the potential, likely potential, that the Fed begins a taper, that all of a sudden valuations begin to matter. And we know where the frothiness of valuations uh, are, are in the market. And that's obviously technology and and, um, uh, and, 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 and the sort, whether it's stocks trading on a multiple of sales because they have no earnings or a high level of earnings, uh, you know, they're certainly the most vulnerable to a change in interest rates and a change in Fed policy. And that's exactly what we're seeing, uh, at least over the past week plus. Yeah. And with this action from the markets, with rates rising, I know the 10-year is still about 20 basis points below uh, the high it hit, not you know just a few months ago. But with the market having this reaction, you know, I call it taper tantrum two electric boogaloo, is there a chance that maybe the Fed doesn't actually make its make its move in November, or that we get kind of a I don't know maybe a stop and stammer from Fed Chair Jay Powell? Well, I, I'd say that uh, the level of the S and P 500 may dictate whether they follow through in November or not. Uh, I think that um, just from uh, a, an evaluation of the economy and inflation, that. Um, they're absolutely going to taper. But yeah, if the S&P's at 3,500 by the time they walk into that November 3rd meeting, uh, maybe they back off. But you know, then if that's the case, then that just reflects this really ridiculous feedback loop that they, they are in, where it's their easy policy that causes a rise in, in markets. And then when they pull back, the markets fall. And then they respond to that fall in markets and not pull back. So it's um, I, I think they'll, they'll, they'll at least start QE and then... Um, uh, I, I doubt they finish it because this tightening, and I believe taper is tightening, 
coincides with a change of pace that we're now beginning to see and potentially going to see with other central banks. So it'll be the world that is 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 backing away all at the same time. And uh, you know, good luck to the markets in in trying to manage through that. I think one thing that's really interesting about the way the markets responded, and I'm talking particularly about the treasury market, is you know we saw these prints. I think it was four straight prints on the CPI above five percent, uh, five one, five three, five four, and then back down to five three if, if my uh, if memory serves. But four straight months of over five percent on the CPI, the consumer price index. And the market really did nothing. It said, oh, okay, whatever. I mean, we're not worried about inflation. But then you get this taper announcement, and we get a 20 basis point jump in the 10 year, uh, moving above 1.5%. You get the 30 year moving above 2%. And now all of a sudden, the market's worried about inflation. Is it inflation or is it simply the market is responding to the fact that the Fed is in complete control and saying, okay, well, maybe the Fed is really going to take this seriously now? Well, a couple of things in there. We have to keep in mind that in three months, January, February, March, the 10-year yield basically doubled in three months. So the inflation stats that you're talking about, that rate move sort of priced in and reflected that sharp rise in inflation. Then I think then rates came off really starting middle of June at the Fed meeting when they said they're going to, they're talking about talking about tapering. That's when you saw the flattening of the curve and this belief that, okay, yeah, maybe inflation is transitory. And, and then, of course, we had this uh, stagflationary growth slowdown, and, and that's why you saw that flattening. I think now, and, and keep in mind, every single time QE, with the previous QEs, when QE was on, yield curve steepened. When QE came off or ended, yield curves flattened. I think this rate move over the past couple of weeks, yeah, maybe it's an initial reaction to um, the, 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 the slight tapering in Europe and, and what will happen here. But I think that people are waking up to the fact that inflation is not so transitory. Because over the past week, we've seen uh, a 10 basis point increase in, in, in inflation expectations in uh, the TIPS market. We've seen a sharp rise in inflation expectations in Europe. And I think part of that is this big, sharp rise in energy over the last couple of weeks. So I think that, I mean, the, the transitory argument, I think, is, is, is now sort of wasting away. I mean, it, first it was base effects, then it was transitory. And I think now people are beginning to realize that this is longer lasting. So yeah, maybe the, the taper helped raise longer rates. But as I said earlier, typically the taper leads to a flattening of the curve because people take this to believe that the tapering and maybe rate hikes after that will eventually slow growth and you, you want to flatten the curve when that happens. Uh, but I think, and we're even having central banks walk away from their transitory argument. Now, I don't know if they actually believed it or not when they said it. Uh, even the irony of them saying it is, well, if, you're, if you keep saying it's transitory, why, are you rooting for, why were you rooting for higher inflation to begin with? Why were you shifting policy to this to this symmetrical goal of of having higher inflation to offset low inflation, and all you're doing is talking down inflation? Well, inflation is not transitory, at least for the next couple of years, I believe. And the markets are waking up to that fact. The yield curve is waking up to that fact. And and how a taper sort of weaves its way through that is going to be tricky because again, 
it pays to flatten the yield curve when the Fed is tapering and QE. But you know, maybe this time is a little different where uh, the lack of, 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 of Fed buying leads to a steeper yield curve. I'm not sure. And I think you hmm. didn't throw in the whole situation with the debt ceiling. Maybe that was an influence on the Treasury market and uh, the possibility of, of them spending a few trillion dollars more. So a, lo- a lot of moving parts here. But I think the bottom to bottom line this is that inflation is sticky, persistent, and will last uh, longer than, than the transitory camp believes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one person who seems to be, as you say, waking up to that reality, Fed Chair Jay Powell, he was speaking with the uh, European Central Bank or, you know, part of a uh, symposium that was put on by the European Central Bank. And I want to read you a quote from him today that I think just really it says I think it speaks volumes to where the Fed is and where the Fed was. Uh, Powell said, quote, It's also frustrating to see the bottlenecks and supply chain problems not getting better. In fact, at the margins, apparently it's getting a little bit worse. We see that continuing into next year, probably, and holding up inflation longer than we had thought. So I remember I read this quote, and I I was like, yeah, yeah, people I was talking to were saying that in January, February, when the Fed was predicting 2.4% inflation uh, for 2021. Um, people I spoke to were saying that. I think you said that, Peter, when we, when I heard you here on Real Vision back in, in March or April. Um, and now that it's September, moving into October, we've got the chairman of the Federal Reserve saying that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, of course, central banks never do anything wrong. And any any side effect is never their fault, right? So it's very convenient that Powell's just blaming the supply side without taking any responsibility that monetary policy is pushing demand side when there's not enough supply. So here, let's take the two most interest rate sensitive parts of the economy, housing and autos. Well, he's got pedal to the metal pushing the demand for housing and autos when you can barely find a home or a car. And if you do, you're paying through the nose for it. So. Of course, he's not going to acknowledge that, okay, yeah, Jay, you're right. The supply chains are all screwed up and it's going to remain that way. Then why are you full pedal pushing the demand side when there's not enough goods to buy? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting question and one that he didn't really address in this particular, uh, you know, address or in any others. Um, that I think takes us really well into this clip that we've got. And this is Real Vision co founder and CEO Rao Powell speaking with chief economist and strategist of Rosenberg Research and Associates, uh, David Rosenberg. Now, David's talking about QE, central banks, and gets into a lot of kind of the things that we've been talking about. So I'm going to roll that clip for you right now. This is David Rosenberg talking to Real Vision co founder and CEO Rao Powell. Why are you linking taper to the labor market? Your taper did nothing for the labor market or QE. Your QE just boosted risk appetite and animal spirits. It had nothing to do with the labor market. Why don't you come out and just say we're doing QE because we think we're in an asset bubble and we're trying to diffuse it? Oh, no, no. They would never, ever dare say that. But what's what is QE and taper got to do uh, with the labor market? 
And what's going to happen next year is even if the Fed did nothing, even if the Fed did nothing, and of course they're barking right now, but people don't understand that the extent of the fiscal squeeze next year, and we're locked into that, uh, is going to be equivalent on its own to 250 basis points of Fed rate hikes. That is the magnitude of the fiscal stimulus withdrawal. Okay, so that was David Rosenberg, chief economist and strategist, Rosenberg Research and Associates, talking to Real Vision Zone, Rao Pal. And that's available today on the Essential Plus and Pro Tiers of Real Vision. So if you're a member, make sure and check that out. If you aren't a member, become a member so you can get access to that full interview. Peter, want to get your reaction, your thoughts on that, this 250 basis points of tightening that's going to come from the lack of fiscal stimulus. What does that mean and why is that important to the market? Well, he's talking about the uh, a lot of the, the government transfer payments that happened at the end of 2020 and in March of 2021, in addition to the unemployment benefits that were juiced up by the federal government, how that's not going to be repeated. So that's what he's referring to. The question is, is to what extent do, uh, do people have higher wage growth and more jobs to, to, to mitigate that? And, and that remains to be seen. But there'll be some sort of a fiscal hangover, there's no question. At the same time, inflation is running for many faster than wage growth. So you're seeing a decline in wage growth. Now, his point about QE uh, yeah, is, is dead on in that QE can't print jobs. Now, someone's not going to hire, someone's not going to make a hiring decision because the Fed's doing QE. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he, because QE, we, we don't know where, what QE does other than juice asset prices and monetize government debt. I mean, prior rounds of QE, where they were meant to suppress interest rates, well, interest rates went up. And when QE ended, interest rates went down, as I talked about earlier with the flattening the yield curve. So, so QE is, is this central bank drug, which I don't even think they understand its use anymore, again, outside of raising asset prices and monetizing debt. Uh, they're just doing it to do it. That, Yeah, they, they seem, and I'll tell you, I've had conversations with Vice Chair Clarida, uh, Atlanta Fed Chair uh, Bostic. I've spoken with uh, San Francisco uh, President Daly, as well as um, uh, Fed Governor Brainerd. And they all, to a person, stand steadfastly by this belief that QE influences the job market, that it's going to make more people get jobs and and increase hiring. And when I ask them about this report that came out from the New York Fed that says QE has minimal influence on increasing jobs and hiring, particularly in marginalized communities like black and brown communities and, and lower income communities, but has a lot of influence on increasing asset prices. And so it actually goes against what they say they're trying to accomplish. They say, oh, well, you know, we don't really look at that. Or, oh, you know, there's other research that says the opposite. And I say, well, what research? And they say, I'll send it to you. And then they don't. It it does seem like there is no empirical research that can draw a line between QE and job growth. It doesn't exist. Now, they'll theoretically say, well, QE is meant to suppress interest rates and that's stimulative, and that therefore creates jobs. But, mm. but you know, if you look in the real world, I don't see job creation taking place in the auto sector because there, right. are, other, there are other factors here. 
I don't see job growth in housing and construction. In fact, you can't really even find anybody and projects are getting canceled because there's not enough stuff. So we have a problem right. with, the, with the supply side as, as they continue to push the demand side. Why are you trying to, 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 to push people to buy a home when, they don't, when, when they're not there? So all these people never actually had to hire somebody in the private sector. So they go off their models and they think as smart as they may be and as many degrees as they may have, they think very simplistically. High rates slows growth, low rates boost growth. Well, if low rates boost growth, even lower rates must boost growth even more. And yeah. hey, if you're in Europe, if, if zero rates are great for the economy, then negative must be spectacular. <laughs> not not yeah. understanding that the purpose of monetary policy and the same with fiscal stimulus is to stimulate behavior to happen now. It's to pull forward things. But if rates are just low forever, you eventually stop pulling forward things. And in fact, pull forward so many things that you end up having a downturn thereafter because you've already pulled forward so many different things. So they just don't understand that concept. And when rates stay low for a long time, it limits the urgency of doing things. If a homeowner realizes that rates are just going to stay low for a long time, well, maybe there's not a rush, and you're not even going to do anything if prices skyrocket. If you're a right. owner that's trying to make a capital investment decision, yeah, maybe rates on the margin may have an effect. But if rates, if you're being told by the Fed the rates are going to stay low for a long time, like they're doing with short rates, saying, yeah, we're going to end QE, but who knows when we're going to raise interest rates. Well, then there's no rush to do anything. There's no sense of urgency to do anything because you're being told by the central bank that rates are going to stay low. That's why forward guidance actually slows growth, but even but their models saying that it's a stimulative to growth. So mm -hmm. the world is quite different in, in terms of, of reality and output compared to what their models tell them. Yeah, and that, that takes us to a great question I want to ask you from one of our viewers on Real Visions The Exchange. We're going to be taking questions uh, during this period, during our uh, the Real Vision Daily Briefing from The Exchange, that's Real Vision social platform. I want to get to a question from Ralph Humphrey. Uh, Ralph asks, do you think the transitory thing is more managing psychology, or do they believe it? You know, this talk about inflation's transitory, inflation's transitory, inflation's transitory. Uh, even in last month's statement, they still left it in there. So what do you think about Ralph's question? Is that all about psychology, or, or is it really something they're, they're really sticking to? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think that they believe it, uh, but there probably is a bit of psychology to it in the sense that they, 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 the, the Fed and not central banks, they want to obviously maintain control over, over interest rates. They want to be able to ease when they want to, and they want to be able to tighten at the schedule at which they want to. And when you have inflation, that alters that equation. They, they lose a bit of control because the markets respond to the inflation numbers rather than to Fed policy. But on the other hand, if they keep pushing this transitory story and it looks dead wrong, which it's looking dead wrong, uh, well, then their credibility is at stake. And to sort of be tone deaf to what's going on 
and I mean, even Powell yesterday saying, yeah, he even repeated, yeah, it's just a few things that's that's causing the inflation. Well, no, Jay, it's not a few things. It's every mm. single good that's made in this world. And it's just about every single service that's na- now taking place that's seeing inflation. It's the most widespread price pressures that we've seen since the 1970s. So there is now credibility that's on the line for these central banks, because we know they, the Fed's been dead wrong in their forecast, as you mentioned, for 2021. And you had John Williams, I think it was either today or yesterday, saying, yeah, just inflation is going to magically fall back to 2% next year. Now, he right, has, that's still the projection. He's not talking to businesses and understanding what is going on. I, I, I encourage him to, to look deeper into the used car market. You know, there's this belief that we had this spike in used car prices up 40% year over year, and they're just going to magically fall back. Not understanding what happens in the car market, where because of the lack of new cars right now, we're obviously seeing a spike in prices as well. Keep in mind, when a lot of people buy a car, they lease it, all right? So the lease matures in three years, and then it sort of goes back into the market as a used car. Fleet buyers, rental car buyers, buy a new car, and then after 10, 15,000 miles, that goes back into the used car market. Well, there's less leases being signed. There's less cars that rental cars, rental car companies are buying. Therefore, there's going to be years of a lack of supply with used cars. So if you think that used car prices are just going to come right back down again, you don't understand how the market works. This is going to remain embedded. It's going to take years a few years to build semiconductor plants. It's going to take years to build more uh, container ships and dry bulk ships and to add passenger uh, airlines, which take a lot of cargo uh, because business travelers aren't coming back so quickly. So yeah, this is more embedded than you think. And even in housing, okay, so even if we slow the pace of home price growth to 10 from now 20%, you're still going to see aggressive rental price increases for years to come. So I don't think that these central bankers just have their finger on the pulse of business when they say some of the things that they say. They're just relying on models. Yeah, Peter, I think that's really interesting, too, when you talk about the the used car market and the market for, you know, all those things, because – the other thing that I, I think about when I hear the Fed and you talk about New York Fed President John Williams saying, oh, this is all magically going to go away. When they say that, it seems to me if I'm a business owner, I'm not going to invest in a new plant or new cargo ships or some of those other things you talked about because I think, oh, this is all just going to magically go away. And why am I going to put in the years of investment to build those things that's going to cost me money now? And, you know, is it's not even going to pay off down the road because this is all just going to go away and be magically fixed. That seems to me going against exactly what the Fed's trying to do, which is another thing that I've heard from business owners say, yeah, we, we aren't really sure that we need to actually do anything. And it's sort of spurring inaction rather than action. And it would seem that action is what we need to actually you know, get out of this crisis that we're in right now. It's exactly why stable prices are the most important foundation for a healthy economy. And the Fed turned it upside down and said, no, we're focused on maximum employment first. Well, you can't have maximum employment unless you have stable prices. So now we have unstable prices, and the the Fed's never going to have their maximum employment because 
unstable prices are now causing a slowdown in growth, which then will filter into the labor market. So it's inflation, excessive inflation is just mud in the gears of business activity. It throws everything off kilter, both from a business perspective and a household perspective who's trying to earn income to pay for their cost of living. So when the Fed and other central banks, their goal was to have 2% inflation, that that 2% inflation number was not an input into an econometric model that resulted in an output that was ideal for the economy. That 2% inflation number was only good for their own um, desire because they felt that if they had inflation at two, that would imply short-term rates two or above. Therefore, if we went into an economic downturn, they would have rates to cut. So right. there was a major disconnect between what they're what they were trying to achieve and what is best for the economy. And inflation just doesn't stop magically at two when you try to push it there. And obviously, we're we're seeing that now. Right. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, we're saying that now. I want to go to another question from the exchange, this one from Carlos I. And I think this gets into the other big topic I wanted to touch on with you, Peter. Um, Carlos asks, how can everything be dying? Energy not really moving, bonds dying, metals dying, SPY, uh, the S&P 500 dying, crypto dying. Is it just that everything is in a state of flux? Well, energy is not dying. You have nine-year highs in natural gas prices. And crude at 75 and Brent above 80, that's been flying. Uh, I, I think to the point of metals, the stock market, I think the markets are trying to digest and understand the reality that inflation is causing central banks to pivot away from their extreme policies of 2020 and into 2021. And as much as Gold and silver, to use as an example, as he mentioned metals in the question, should be roaring higher because of this inflation. Uh, it is instead responding to the rise in the dollar and the lift in real rates, even though real rates across the curve are still deeply negative and not just in the US, but globally. So I, I think we're, and, and I've used this analogy years before, and I'll use it again. When QE is on, the beer goggles are on, and everything looks good. And when QE, and obviously QE hasn't changed yet, but will, starts to unwind, then those the beer goggles start to clear up, and investors become more discriminating in what they buy and how they want to value things. Mm, yeah, yeah. Those those beer goggles start clearing up. You, they, it's what they say. The ugly lights come on, right? That's and that seems to be like what's what we got going on right now. So I want to dig in just a little bit, Peter, with those metals because you talked about. I mean, gold down almost one percent today, but silver just getting absolutely shellacked down as much as five percent today. Down, I think right now about four percent. And you talked about it in an environment like this. 
we've got inflation running hot. We've got the stock market having a big crash or turn down yesterday. And yet we have not seen the usual response as a, a sort of risk off asset from gold and silver and those precious metals uh, and crypto as well getting hit. What are your thoughts about why that's happening and what's going on? Can you, you see my black eye today from uh, <laughs> being long? Uh, yeah. And the stars on my back. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been brutal, and I think that it's they're just trading off the move in the dollar in real rates, which you know is what they should trade off. But you know, real rates is a funny thing because people are looking at real rates based on the tips market, and the tips market's priced off CPI. I argue that you know that that's really not that realistic. And if you look at current CPI this year, real rates are. Or minus four to five percent, not the you know minus uh, one-ish that someone would look at at the ten-year. So it is um, pretty frustrating watching the decline. But I I, I do think we're, we're close in the selling, and that when you look at prior periods of rising interest rates that coincided with higher inflation, and even just sometimes just rates going up itself. Rally, we saw rallies in gold and silver. In the 1970s, rates and gold went up hand in hand. The mid-2000s, Alan Greenspan raised interest rates from 1% to north of 5 and the price of gold doubled. December 2015, Janet Yellen raised interest rates for the first time in seven years, and that marked the bottom of that gold bear market. So those that are selling gold and silver because you think that the Fed is somehow going to get aggressive here— if you're right, then okay, maybe that was the right move. But if you believe, as I do, that the Fed will not be aggressive at all, and I think we're, we're seeing that, and no central bank will be aggressive outside of maybe the bank in Norway or in South Korea, uh, and if you believe that Washington will still have a, a, a spending spree, then I think you, you need to grit your teeth and you need to hang on, uh, because I think that the best days are still ahead. Uh, for gold and silver. And from a sentiment standpoint, it's hard to think of a more hated asset class, particularly the gold miners. Uh, I think that when you look at silver that's down more than 50% from an all-time high, name me one asset class that's down that much from its highs. So um, I'm going to continue to grip my teeth and I'll continue to absorb the punches uh, confident in the view that um, uh, they, they will be going higher in the years to come. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you before we get out of here, Peter, is just about you know what's on the other side of all this move. You know, when you talk about when you talk about precious metals, when you talk about commodities, even when you talk about cryptocurrencies, right? The the thing on the other side of all that is the dollar, and the dollar has been getting stronger. Uh, the dollar index, which measures the the dollar against you know six major global currencies, broke up through that ninety four level, which I think was psychologically important for a lot of people. You're seeing the euro now down below one sixteen. The yen going up above 112 versus the dollar, um, and and all these, you know, the dollar strength today is just very clearly on across the board. As you see that, what are you thinking, and what are you, you know, excited about, worried about? Do, do you feel like this has legs and it's going to go forward? Talk to me about that. So, you have to acknowledge the strength, no doubt, and um, and and I don't know how long it goes. Uh, I mean, I think in the short term, it's certainly responding to the Fed that says, yeah, we not only do we want to taper, 
but we want to end it in, in seven months, which is a shorter period of time that they, they stretched out QE3. Uh, the ECB, of course, that is, is still, even though they're tapering, it's only modest. Uh, and of course, I think the, the energy problem that Europe is having right now is another reason for this uh, recent bout of weakness in the euro and the pound. Uh, but I, I think the question is, is, is how sustainable is a dollar rally? Uh, particularly when you still have the bigger picture headwinds of uh, a trade deficit and a budget deficit as a percent of GDP being as large as it is, and, and that's typically currency negative. And higher inflation that is persistent is also currency negative. And the U.S. has higher inflation rates than any other developed country. So I don't necessarily think that it's that sustainable. And from a technical standpoint, just mm. looking at our size, dollars overbought, treasuries are oversold, and certainly gold and silver are very oversold. So um, I, I think we may get some mean reversion in the coming weeks in that trade. Now, where we go after that, that, that sort of uh, contra move, I don't know. Can the dollar index go to 94? Well, it's already 94. Could it go to 95, 96? Maybe. But um, I still think that big picture headwinds for the dollar. Are, are, are firmly in place and rallies are just trading rallies more than anything else, mm. which is fine. Uh, for Peter, it's fine for what? Yeah, which is fine for someone who wants to play that. Gotcha. Peter Bookvar, thank you so much for being with us. Chief Investment Officer of Bleakly Advisory Group and, of course, editor of The Book Report. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Dan. Always fun. That's going to do it for today's Real Vision Daily Briefing. Thanks again to all of you out there for watching. Tomorrow, I'll be back with you. I'm sitting down with Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Same time, same place. In the meantime, we will see you all on Real Vision's The Exchange. Look forward to talking there. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.